guys, Psychology Nerds. Welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast on psychology out of the Phoenix studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I am Ryan Martin, host of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here with my co-host and my friend, chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungess. How are you, G? I am doing very well. It's nice to be out back in this groove of doing our podcast. I'm super excited for our new season. It's going to be great. I am excited too. It's um we started basically this morning with a our first production season of uh, excuse me our first production meeting of this season, um, which was really really fun. It was like the most fun I've had in frankly months, if I'm being honest. As far as uh, I guess work related fun, I did go on a vacation this summer, so that was that was something. And uh, it's worth noting, part of what made it fun is that we have a brand new intern who is joining the team for the semester. I'm super, super excited uh, to introduce him. It's Hunter Garrett. How's it going, Hunter? How's it going, everybody? <laughs> We're so glad to have you involved. This is going to be really great. Hunter, tell people about yourself, if you can. Anything of interest? So I'm a student at UW-Green Bay, um, psych major, philosophy minor. Um, I mean, that's, that's about it at the moment. I have, we have totally sprung his speaking role on him in the moment. So this is the first he knew he was going to be contributing today. But um, hey, I appreciate it, Hunter, and I'm super, super excited to have you. And um, you have taken classes from both Georgina and I. You've done fabulously, and I know this is going to be great. Uh, so thank you. I also have a class with our guest as well. All right, that's right. <laughs> so yeah, well, on that note, we should introduce our guest to everybody. So we are starting out with um, something I am really excited about. We have an amazing guest today. Uh, he's one of the two new faculty members in the psychology program here at UW-Green Bay. We're super excited to have him here. He graduated from Northern Michigan University in 2009. He got his master's from there in experimental psych in 2011, and then went and got his PhD in biopsychology from Virginia Commonwealth University in 2014. He brings to UW-Green Bay a really impressive and exciting research program where he evaluates the effects of electronic cigarettes. It's Dr. Todd M. Hillhouse. How are you, Todd? Doing well. I'm doing well. Excited about this podcast and kind of getting everything going here. Yeah, so I, I'm going to start by saying I can't imagine really a more challenging way to start a new job than um, you've had with um, uh, essentially starting up an animal lab, uh, moving, um, teaching new courses, uh, doing all that in the middle of an international health crisis. So I guess I'm going to start just by asking, how are you holding up? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's been... Um... Definitely interesting, I guess, is, is the best word. Um, yeah, we when we drove across the country, we actually left a few months early to come to Wisconsin because we had no reason to stay in Utah since we weren't <laughs> allowed to be on campus or do anything. So we moved in at the end of April. So right when that whole, when they were locking everything down. So that was a little scary to drive across the country and not touch anything, right? <laughs> yeah, I bet. I was, um, I was out of town when it all kind of started and I had driven to see just not too far, but uh, had a similar experience kind of coming home, driving home just four or five hours, but sort of feeling like, do we stop and get gas? Are we, how do we handle this? You know, so, but that wasn't cross country. That was just uh, a few hours. And well, we had, a, was we like had a two-year-old and a six-year-old 
Oh, geez. so tell them to get it, you know, to go into a gas station and go to the bathroom, but don't touch anything. Yeah. So uh, we had hand sanitizer everywhere and just we're spraying it. And... <laughs> well, and Hunter had to fly back from abroad, like during the, the pandemic as well. Yeah. That, that is one of the things I'm anxious about is the first time I fly again, that that is something that I'm just sort of wondering how that's going to go, how I'm going to feel about it. Um, yeah, I was actually, actually just asked, go ahead. I was just asked to, to uh, kind of asked to possibly go to California to give a talk on e-cigarettes and um, it, I'm definitely game for it, but I don't, I'm also terrified at the same time. So I've yet to, to really um, push on it because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. We um, we had to cancel a whole bunch of trips uh, this summer. My wife and I did, and and the the funny thing is, one of them we really like kind of labored about. It was our twentieth anniversary. We kind of went back and forth over and over and over again, and then we decided to cancel it. Said that's a smart thing to do, and then it was out of the country, so we wouldn't have been able to go anyways. So it was like the decision was going to be made for us, um, but um, so I want to talk about. You know, you just mentioned, I'm going to use the, the, the talk in California as a segue. You just mentioned uh, the, you know, giving a talk on e-cigarettes. I want to start there because you, you, you know, the, we're, I was said in your bio, you study, you evaluate the effects of electronic cigarettes. So what are the effects of electronic cigarettes Let's, um, or e-cigs, as you, you say? Um, oh, man, that's a, that's a loaded question, right? Uh -huh. um, so my interest came... Uh, from some students when I was at Weber State University. And so um, I don't do clinical research by any means, but there was some lab remodeling happening. And so um, kind of just took on the project and I had no plans on moving this to animals and in, you know, at the time. And so we started doing a couple of projects um, and, you know, in humans, the question just became, why are people using them was really what we started looking at. Um, and so we decided how can we evaluate this and so some of the stuff we started looking at was we were having people actually vape um but we wouldn't tell them like we give them a flavor of vape i think we ended up settling on gummy bear um i know it it was the best selling one apparently it doesn't taste very good uh, <laughs> but i don't vape so i didn't know that at the time um, but we'd give them a vape that had flavor in it and the one that didn't and we would ask them to kind of rank how you know or or report how much they liked it and and that kind of stuff and so what we actually found was that um flavor didn't change how rewarding it necessarily was um and it could have been the flavor we chose but what we did find is that there appears to be two populations of e-cigarettes the low dose users and that's who we looked at um, and then the high dose users that a lot of other labs have looked at and what we found was interesting is that if you're a low dose user, you don't like high doses of nicotine. And so that's what we started to see was that as we increased the dose on the people, that they started to report it having negative effects and then not enjoying it. So there's kind of this, the, these subpopulations of e-cigarette users. Hmm. So that was kind of the clinical study that we've done. Um, did you have a question, Georgina? I was wondering if, um, if the high dose users were um, trying to quit smoking um, tobacco-based cigarettes. Uh, and so that they have a different motivation for using e-cigs or vapes um, versus 
the, the low dose population, which may be new users, or is that not even the case? I don't know. I don't have an answer because some of the, the higher dose, it's kind of a mixture of some people using it to quit smoking. I think a good amount of them. Um, it, it's just a lot of people have only done research on the high dose nicotine. And so mm -hmm. we had done, when I first got to, to um, Weaver, one thing I did was survey all, you know, I think 450 um, psych 1010 students and that we found that most of them actually, when they were e-cigarette users, they used really low doses. And then some actually use no nicotine, which yeah. I'm not quite sure why. Um, so that was kind of why that became an interest of ours is that, you know, okay, if there's these different populations, um, you know, what are people actually using and why? Yeah, it, it's so funny to me because I, my first encounter with e-cigarettes was as essentially a nicotine replacement system designed to help people deal with uh, nicotine addiction. And, um, you know, and I can't even tell you how long ago that was, honestly, probably 15, 16 years that, you know, that, that uh, I, I started kind of hearing about them that way. So my, when I first started talking about them, it was actually in an abnormal psych class talking about um, substance abuse and, and things like that. And it, it's interesting to see where things have gone since then, you know, that that is essentially in many ways, I mean, I don't talk about them in that context anymore. They, I don't really know if they serve that purpose anymore um, in the same way they once did. Um, and then I hear things like gummy bear flavored and am sort of blown away by kind of how, what they've become, I guess. Yeah. And that's, that's what one of my lines of research really is. So I, I've now mo moved it into animals. Um, but that is one of the hardest things about e-cigarettes in general is that there are so many variables that the user gets to choose. And I think that's one of the reasons why they like it. You can choose flavor you can, there's different, you know, there's the e-cigarette that you're talking about that was rechargeable or disposable. Then they have other ones that are now the same way, but they're rechargeable and they only come generally in tobacco or menthol flavor. And then they have vape pens, which are kind of a mix between the cigarette you were, cigarette you're talking about and what they call mods now. And the mods are, you have like a I forget what they call it. You have the mod, I guess, and that's what can heat everything up, but you can put different tanks on it. So you can have tanks with, you know, um, that different atomizers and all these different things. And so it just becomes really hard because once you change one variable, it changes how the puff is and all of that. And um, so that, that's been really hard for us, especially trying to translate into animals is how do we create a model that mimics humans? Right. But I think we found it. But I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that it it changes dramatically. Like this, this is one of the um, like in my not educated opinion, one of the fastest changing um, generally used drugs out there. Mm -hmm. Like alcohol has been alcohol for a really long time, and like beer is beer. But I feel like vaping just it has really quickly changed from ginormous, really big, like e-cigarettes to a tiny little jump drive size, little um, mod or vape or whatever. And, like, and so I feel like it's changed really dramatically. Would you say that that is true? Yeah, I would say, I mean, even when I started in the animals, we, we use a mod system um, because that's what most people are using, right? The, 
Um, but even the tanks that we bought for that, I went back to buy more. Um, and those are not necessarily the ones that are used anymore because they've changed them and, and whatnot. And so it's always changing. And now the big one is a, is a, it's kind of like a bait pen. It's called Jewel. Um, and, and the major difference there is that people like it because it's smoother. And the major difference is that in the normal e-cigarettes, they use a free base nicotine. Um, whereas in Juul, it's a hydrochloride or a salt form of the nicotine. So it tends to be a lot smoother. Um, and then there's, there's a question about the dose though too. It appears to be quite a bit higher, but part of the, the reason it seems to be higher is because it does have the salt increases the weight. So it might not be quite as high as we think it is, but as far as nicotine goes. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I, I have long felt that being any kind of substance abuse uh, expert ha requires just to stay on top of not just the scientific literature, but also like sort of pop culture uh, expertise that is almost impossible or impossible for me to imagine staying on top of. And I feel like you're confirming all of that and more <laughs> in this conversation that it feels like there's just so much to, to try and master here that it, it, it feels so challenging. Yep. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. So I also think like in the survey world, um, like I do a lot of research on the youth risk behavior survey um, in sixth through 12th graders. And um, the way that they answer some of the um, smoking questions is what we call them as a, as a group uh, is very interesting is that um, students sixth through 12th graders will say no that they don't use e-cigarettes because they're juuling and juuling is different than e-cigs and so they will they will say no to a question that when you use the wrong language and so I, I would imagine that um, trying to replicate uh, the research that you're doing um, where you don't have to use vocabulary because you're working with animals um, would be difficult to translate even in a survey um, for students. Yeah, like I said, I don't normally do clinical work, but when I did that survey to kind of look, I was looking at drug use trends is kind of what I was doing. I was considering doing a long-term study, but it was funny because even when I asked about marijuana, I had questions about, you know, every question I said, you know, do you use this drug? And then it was, then the followed up, like, is it daily? You know, is it occasionally? But, and I think one of them said, would you consider yourself a smoker? Right. Or would you consider your, you know, do you do this? And it was funny because they would say no, but then they would report that they used, you know, the drug daily, but they didn't want to be like deemed as, you know, like a cigarette user. So no, I'm not a cigarette user. I just smoke them. <laughs> so it, was, it was very interesting. So we had to go through and kind of figure out what was going on on those, you know, those, those data. So. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the animal lab you're setting up and you, you said something a, a couple minutes ago about, you know, it's been hard to come up with a model, but you think you've got it. Um, give me a sense for what that means and what, what the, how you try and replicate this with in your lab. Yeah, so we, you know, the big thing is that it's, um, you know, we, we kind of have to force the animals to smoke a little bit. So that's, that's one of them. But it, a lot of it for me is trying to come up with a model where the animals are exposed to approximately the same amount of smoke as somebody or vapor um, that a person who's using an e-cigarette. 
we would um, be exposed to. And so we did use some of the survey data on, you know, how long are sessions and things like that. We used, we used data from other publications. And so we've tried to come a model because we essentially pump the, the vapor into a chamber and the, and the animals are in that chamber. Well, like you and I, if we were to take a puff, you know, we inhale it and we blow it out right away. It's not lingering around us. And so I've tried to incorporate that into a little bit of kind of how long they're exposed to the nicotine. Um, and that's kind of what we've worked on. And so we've come up with a model where we expose them to um, a three second puff every um, two minutes. And we usually have a session be about 10 minutes because that's what it would be in a human. Um, and so we've had some data where we've been able to show it has some addictive like properties in you know using that dose. Um, we've just recently, we have it, it's under review. Um, we've looked at some effects on the lungs and some cytokine data. Um, so we feel like we have a decent model there. Another paper just recently came out where they used a very similar model to us, very, very similar in their dosing. So it kind of makes me feel that we're right on this path. Um, and then right before COVID hit, my lab um, at Weber, we had focused on kind of uh, looking at the different parameters. So we looked, did a whole study where we had no nicotine involved, but we were looking at how did puff duration affect animals' behavior? Because that's, you know, a big question because there are some labs that will expose mice to five hours of vapor. And I just think of like what human <laughs> sits and smokes, you know, and they get these big effects in the lungs, but I try to think about how does this actually translate, you know? Um, and so that's kind of where we're at now. Um, and so I actually have a couple of really fun ideas. Um, there's a model that we can use called drug discrimination and you can essentially train an animal in this case, we'll train a mouse to press one lever, um, when they get nicotine and then another lever when they get anything that does not feel like nicotine. And so we're going to train them just on injections of nicotine, which is pretty established in the literature. And then what we're going to do is expose them to vape and do different, change different, you know, how long the puff duration is, the, diff, the, the concentrations of nicotine in the vapor, um, and be able to find out under what conditions does vapor feel like injected nicotine. So it gives us a little bit more of, um, you know, kind of translating it and making sure our models fit with what we would normally see. Do you use flavored vape, um, vapors for those mice? And if so, is cheese their favorite flavor? <laughs> Uh, we've done a lot without it just because we didn't want it to be a confounding variable. Um, but we have, we did test in that one, in the, in the research where we were just looking at vapor durations and, um, we did test tobacco flavor. Um, mm. and then we tested strawberry. So we wanted to try to have a good and a bad flavor to see if that made much of an effect. And, um, we didn't necessarily see it. Um, a couple groups have come out and said that green apple, has rewarding properties without nicotine. Hmm. So there's something in the green apple flavors that rodents like. Interesting. I, as a general rule, I hate green apples. Uh, <laughs> I, I love red apples, so I don't know if that. Um, that means you're not a mouse, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, um, so I'm curious, you started this out 
you, you mentioned that this that some of the this study came from a group of students you were working with early on. So did this uh, did this program of research start with you post uh, graduate school, or is this something you did in graduate school? How did no? So this is totally different. So I had never I had never worked with nicotine um, oh. in, at all in my career. So it kind of just one of these that. Students had the idea, we kind of sat down, and then um, I took actually took them to Society for Neuroscience um, one year, I'm trying to think of what year, maybe 2017, and then we were there and we were walking around and somebody had um, a setup on how to vape mice, and I went, okay, um, wrote an internal grant, and, and then it was funded by the university, so then that's when we made the switch over to animals. Okay. That is very cool. But you've done um, other kinds of uh, drug research. This isn't the first time that you've worked with animals and drugs like opioids and other other kinds of drugs. Can you tell us a little bit more about that research? Yeah. So yeah, that's been my whole career has been um, this you know drugs of abuse. So I've I've done a lot of research on um, looking at the antidepressant effects and the addictive effects of ketamine. So I know there's whole ketamine's been in the, you know, especially in the um, media about its antidepressant effects. Um, and so I've done a lot on that. Um, I've done a lot on trying to discover new drugs for treating cocaine addiction. Um, that was what my postdoc work was on. Um, and a lot of work on trying to develop novel pain treatments. And so, um, and I'll be doing all of that um, at Green Bay. So um, I'm really excited about the lab because I have a lot more toys here than I did at Weaver. So, um, you know, I'm just, in, I was in the lab this weekend and I got to start setting it up and starting to take pictures, you know, just seeing where everything is going and really getting it set up. And so we'll have, um, you know, a lot of things I wanted to do at Weaver that I couldn't do because I didn't have the equipment. Now I have the equipment or I will have the equipment. Um, so I'm just really excited because we can, we can do anything from addiction work to pain, to depression, to, um, you know, any of that. So I love hearing that. I'm really, really excited about, um, about all of that. What's it, what's it take to, so, so listeners know, what does it take to set up an animal, an animal lab like this? I mean, I know you're not starting, well, maybe you are starting from complete scratch here, but what, what are you putting together to, to build this? Yeah, it's complete scratch. <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, it takes time. I mean, it's my second time doing it, so I have a better idea of what I'm doing. Um, that's definitely for sure. So, um, you know, you got to get cages. That's one of the first things, right? Um, when I first at Weber, I didn't realize that, right? And I got there, I'm like, oh, there's no cages. Um, no, so, you know, it's just getting, it's getting cages. We do a lot of, um, you know, we have operant boxes. Um, and so it's a lot of it just figuring out space um, and, you know, where things can go, what's going to optimize everything. Um, I was lucky enough to bring some equipment with me um, from Weber. So I did be, I was able to bring the vape set up and um, all of that. But now that I've done it once, it's a lot quicker. Um, I do wish I had a student or two to help me. Um, because this past weekend I was wanted to move a table and I realized that you know, I'm not that strong. Uh, <laughs> it's got one of those, you know, really heavy countertops on it. So, um, yeah, it just takes time and planning. And, um, you know, if there are any students out there interested, have them contact me because, um, you know, my students run the lab is really the way I look at it is, you know, um, I help them, but they are a part of every phase. 
in the research. And so if I had someone here to help me set up, then they would just become more familiar with the, with the equipment and all that. Um, but yeah, I have, we're waiting on equipment to come in and then it will be a lot of building and you know, changing things around and, and all of that. But the goal is mid-October, we will be up and running. That's amazing. That's a month from now, a little more than a month. Yeah, don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm frantically emailing Aya Cook, and um, you know, I think I need my proposals in by Friday. So, gotcha. Okay. So, so what's the first thing out of the gate that that I think that drug about? discrimination study. Um, the nice thing is it's something that you can train up, so you don't need a ton of animals to do it. Um, and so, I think I can do it on my own until I get a student. Um, will be the plan is to go in in the morning. I think, run it. It'll take two hours, then I'm done. Um, but I breed, we breed our own animals. So um, that will take us um, eight to 10, eight to 12 weeks before we start having animals that we can use. Um, so the idea is if I can order some animals for this drug discrimination study and then work on that, why these are breeding. And then hopefully in that meantime, get, get a couple of students that are interested in what I'm doing, interested in going to grad school, um, that kind of stuff. So, as we finish up here, I'm curious, what, um, I, I guess, what do you want to add? What have we missed? What, what should we have asked that we didn't about where things are headed? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't know. If, I don't think I have an answer to that. I don't think you guys hit on everything. I have a question, uh, though, yeah. that I didn't uh, get to ask. I'm wondering about, like, uh, the implications of your really like sciencey kind of research, the implications of that for our larger community, like um, in the marketing of, of a drug like vape or um, like in pain management or um, in like the, the argument that vaping is safer mm -hmm. than smoking tobacco cigarettes. Like, um, what do you see the role of your sciencey research in um, the broader world? Yeah, that's a, uh, so. I would say for the e-cigarettes, you know, it, it's hard, right? Because we ne can't necessarily tell people to smoke and then see what it does on their lungs. We also, you know, people are smoking, then we, you know, we got to follow them for a period of time before we know what the long-term effects of the vaping um, is. And so that's one thing that our research can do is that we can accelerate it, right? Mice grow at a much faster, um, you know, rate than we do. So, you know, an eight week old mouse is considered an adult. And so you can start to, you know, look at what does chronic treatment do? What does long-term exposure do in a mouse, you know, but it's going to take us years before we can do that in humans. And um, so I think that's kind of where our place is, is trying to take, figure out what these, you know, um, trying to speed up our process and understanding why people are using them and then how they're using them. And again, that's why for me, it's been really important about learning or trying to develop a uh, translational model. I'm not out here to get results. I don't care what the results are. And I think that's where some people forget, right? Um, I like to publish, I like to publish a lot, but at the same time, I want it to mean something. And so if we use models that don't translate, it doesn't help us in understanding what's going on. Um, I will say this, if you are considering vaping, um, I wouldn't, okay, <laughs> but this is, this is the, this is the most uh, unscientific way of explaining it, but 
the system we use, it, it essentially is a, a, a pump, like a, a, not a sub pump, but like a pump for garden type of thing, right? Just sucks air in, pushes it out, nothing special. But it sucks the vape into a chamber. The vape ends up going, coming out of the vapor and, or out of the chamber and goes into the pump and then leaves the pump through a filter, okay? So it just kind of passes through this, this pump. The pump is all metal, so it's non-porous, okay? Um, but we have to clean out the pump every month because it just collects oil. And I'm talking, we're, we're talking about like a cup of oil every month comes out of it. And so um, the way I look at that is that those aren't, that, that's like the lungs of the system, right? Mm -hmm. To some degree, it's non-porous. Our lungs are extremely porous. And so if you are inhaling this vapor, you know, I can only imagine what it's doing, um, you know, when it gets into your lungs and starts attaching to different areas in your lungs. So um, I don't, you know, I don't think it's very safe, but I also, um, you know, have little evidence to suggest that at this point. So. Except for the couple of cup of oil. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Except for that. <laughs> Amazing how, so just a quick aside that this summer I've been working on trying to schedule the, the college's classes in the era of COVID. And so I've become immersed in all sorts of really disgusting things about the human body, um, especially in our music <laughs> department, where as it turns out, singing is gross, uh, as is uh, <laughs> playing the trumpet and the trombone and all sorts of other things where we're, we're literally putting in requests for things like kitty litter so that we have a place to dump the, uh, the spit pumps and, and things like that. So human bodies, uh, and now I've got more. Here I thought I was gonna get away from that somehow. And uh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, so very, very nice. Um, is there anything you want to, so Georgina and I have a little segment that we're going to move to here in a second, but is there anything, Todd, you want to add before, uh, before we move into our last segment? Um, no, just, I would say, yeah, if there's anyone listening that's interested in, in hearing more about the research, um, wanting to get involved, um, you know, um, if you're interested in going to grad school somewhere in the area, I'm happy to talk to you. I have a pretty good record of placing people. So if you're debating between my lab and someone else's, don't don't go to theirs. <laughs> I like it. the other side wow. if you don't listen to this. Yeah, yeah. bring it, man. <laughs> I can assure you, uh, students are going to be clamoring to work with you on these projects. Like I just, I have no doubt about it. This is fascinating, fascinating stuff, and um, we're I'm so so happy you're here, um, and students are going to be so happy you're here as well. So. Um, awesome. Well, thanks for having me. You bet. And you can stick around for this last segment too, but it's we, uh, Georgina and I are, are, we used to do this thing called a rapid research review, and we've decided that we're going to transition into something a little bit different going forward. Um, so we have a new segment we're kicking off here where we end every episode on a positive note, and we are calling it, because we are clever, a positive note. And... Uh, <laughs> I this is what four hours of planning does for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, G, in our production meeting earlier today, we, which we do on Microsoft Teams, uh, we started talking about the thumbs up emoji that comes up in Microsoft Teams. And, uh, you know, Todd, I don't know if you're familiar with the thumbs up emoji in Microsoft Teams. 
it's really gross looking, right? It's this weird, in fact, I'm gonna send a, a video of it to Hunter so that he can post it on social media because it's, it's this really gross, like slow motion thumb thing that I always- yeah, it's like animated. It's not like a, a, a still emoji, it's an animated emoji. And so I, I, I chatted with Ryan, I said, oh my gosh, that emoji reminds me of like thumb wrestling. Or I thought of, I don't know if you've ever seen this really old movie called Spy Kids like it came out like in 1999 or, or something when my kids were young and they had these really creepy like thumb guys they were like the bad guys and they were walking around thumbs and i was like ah it's the thumb guys <laughs> it is really 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 nasty um but yeah so I can tell you, I only use the thumbs up emoji ironically. Uh, I never ever mean like actually thumbs up <laughs> when I use it. But Georgina, you're an active emoji user. I don't think I know anyone who uses emojis as much as you do. No, I I think I might be an excessive <laughs> emoji user. Um, if 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 I'm being honest, like and fessing up, I I think I rarely send a text an email, a response to social media without a without an emoji, you should ask if I'm all right. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. You know, what's funny is that I actually, um, I use them so little that they don't even come up automatically for me. Like, you know how <laughs> when you type a word in and then it like pops up? Other people were like, I said, how do you even send an emoji? This is how old I am. And someone said, <laughs> Well, no, it just pops up as an option, and I and it didn't for me that I, I had to like retrain my phone to make that happen. Um, wow, you should yeah. just come live in my house for like just in ten minutes, and you'd be on it. <laughs> so if I send an emoji, it means one of two things: like I want to respond to you, but I don't know what to say. So here is a picture of something, or it means that I'm in trouble. Right, so that'll be my clue. You not using an emotion me, emoji means you're in trouble. Me using one means that I've been abducted. So yep, but it's amazing to me, um, like how often others use emojis as well. So I think Ryan, you're kind of an anomaly here. Like I, I feel like the rest of the world has just moved on from where you're at and like has fully embraced the emoji. And I think emojis sometimes mean different things for different generations. Like Hunter could probably school us right now on you know, like uh, 10 different emojis that I use that I shouldn't, you know, <laughs> that means something. I don't think that means what you think it means <laughs> kind of, kind of uh, thing. And so I think, uh, but it, it is, it adds to me some joy. And so that's why I wanted to talk about emojis in a positive note, because for me, emojis, add like a little bit of color and a little bit of brightness to any sort of like black ink on white email background. And I would actually agree with you. I think the, the reason, in fact, I know there's actually research on this that I talk about in my Psych of Emotion class about, um, about what, they, what they do. And I, although I hate to say this, too many is considered unprofessional, but a little bit uh, is considered uh, like it sort of sends the message that you're, uh, uh, you know, easy to talk to and, and approachable and things like that. So I think specifically in college professors, they did, although the number was, in some study I saw, seven smiley faces was like sort of the threshold at which it was too many. And I thought, no, 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 no. 
That is way too many. Seven, <laughs> I bet I've seven smiley faces in my life. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, I can't even say that I have either. I, I, I think I, I probably max out at three, maybe four, if it's somebody's birthday. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, not. But I actually um, did some research last year before COVID um, using emojis in my Canvas course, my learning management system course. Um, and I still use them. Um, using them to organize things. And so using emojis to cue students um, that this is a homework assignment or this is a computer lab. And so using a little computer emoji or a little pencil and paper kind of emoji thing um, as, as a way to organize things and, um, and add a little color uh, as well. So I don't, I don't know, the research didn't turn out so, so great. <laughs> It wasn't bad. Um, and the emoji, the students were exposed to a, a class that they had never seen, like a class show. And then I quizzed them on things that they would have needed to have learned from that. And they did better when the emojis were there, but not better enough um, to be significant in the statistical sense. Um, but I'm still interested in pursuing that. And so in all honesty, one of the things I'm really interested in with the with the emotion faces in particular is how like, readily recognizable they are. When you when you really look at like if you were to, to take out your phone and look at like the anger emoji, it's really actually interesting to me that there's very little to it, yet it is immediately recognizable to people as as anger. And and actually to be even more basic than that, like dash underscore dash is what people would often use to mean anger. And that's that's three simple lines, but it's again, readily recognizable. And to me, it actually speaks to something really interesting about what we look to when we look to a, a human face to determine emotion. Um, that, you know, in, in the case of the emoji, uh, the, uh, an emoji, it's, it's you know, the, the color red indicates something along with the, the eyebrows uh, and, and so on. But, but to think that you can essentially recreate that with three characters from a keyboard is, is really actually pretty fascinating about uh, how human beings interpret emotion. So. But there is one, one emoji that people get lost at. I, I'll, talk to, I'll try to find the link, but they found that, um, you know, the, cry, the laughing crying emoji? Mm -hmm. yep. They found that um, older people think that's just a laughing one or think it's a crying one. And so they'll use it when like they should be sad. And so <laughs> people think that they're like mocking them. Yes. <laughs> I, I so think <laughs> the generational gaps when it comes to emoji usage is pretty great. Uh, the, the, and not just that, but uh, some other, um, some other sort of common phrases, like people misinterpreting LOL and things like that, that I always, uh, that I always enjoy seeing. Um, I think someone taught his mom that LOL meant lots of love. And so she <laughs> would respond to like heartbreaking things with LOL. <laughs> Be like, the dog died today, LOL, you know? And so, That's kind of the same thing that they would use that crying smiley face. <laughs> yeah. Very... I think it, it's a fun like area of research that I, I think would be really cool to do. You know, so I've I've actually looked at some of this over time and, and much like Todd's work, one of the challenges is that the technology changes so quickly that it's actually really hard to sort of stay on top of it. And by the time you do a study, 
and and try and publish it, it, it might be out of date, right? The emoji you're talking about is has changed or morphed or how I mean um, that those things um, that 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 stuff happens quickly um, or that those changes happen quickly. Well, that was a lot of fun. Um, it is time for us to wrap up though. So I've got a few quick things to say. First of all, I already mentioned Hunter, but if you wanna see his work firsthand, you should give us a follow on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can do that by searching for at Psych and Stuff. Um, you can get involved in the Psych and Stuff conversation there. You can ask questions, you can request episodes. You can even con uh, contribute to our new segment, A Positive Note. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. That's at Ricymart. At not just Twitter, all the places at Ricymart. So Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I'm on TikTok now, Georgina. I know you're I'm just having, too cool for me. <laughs> I'm having so much fun on TikTok, an alarming amount of fun. So it's at Ricymart if you want to see someone who's too old for TikTok use TikTok. <laughs> That's what my my kids who were who were a lot older than your kids were like. Please, mom, don't. No, that was my dog. <laughs> my kids love it, so they are really enjoying it. But they don't know that only a handful of people are watching. So that uh, is fine. Yeah. But, yep. You can check um, my social media, not TikTok, but all the rest of them at Georgina WD. So that's G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D. Very good. And Todd, I meant to ask earlier, but uh, are you on Twitter or any places? Where can people learn more about you? I guess is a good question. Not Twitter. I still don't understand Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Just a very no, helpful. I don't. I actually, I uh, ran the, I started a Weber Brains um, social media campaign when I was there. So all my focus was on that. And uh, now I don't run it anymore. You can follow Weber Brains. They do some cool things. Uh, but no, I just, no, I, I, can't, I can't come up with a cool name yet. I, I had a cool name for Instagram. And then apparently I don't know the password or the email <laughs> that I made it with. And now I just can't find another name. So I just, I can't commit at this point yet. I, I get that. So, well, if people want to learn more about you, they can check you out on the psychology website. If not now, probably soon, I imagine you'll be on the UWGB psychology website. So I, I say that because Georgina is right here giving me the thumbs up. The community. Yeah, I think we're in the process of building a page or they can Google search me. They might find some things. Okay. So. Well, that sounded ominous. They might find some things. Well, <laughs> research. <laughs> Outstanding. Thank you so much for being here, Todd. This is really fun. Psychology and Stuff is a production out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Bleese. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Todd Hillhouse. Now, if you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungess. Keep being amazing.